Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. For years, for decades, women got a completely raw deal in the world of rock and roll. Their job was to look pretty, sing, maybe shake a tambourine. While some became very successful and popular, they were still limited by the old boys' club nature of the business. But over the years, that changed. It was painfully slow, but progress was made. Then came the 1990s, when we saw a seismic shift in music. Generation X, the sons and daughters of the baby boomers, demanded that music reflect their dreams, hopes, wishes, fears, anger, and concerns. They remade popular music in their own image. And within a matter of just months, the old guard of legacy artists and hair metal bands were pushed aside in favor of new sounds and new attitudes. Among these new ways of thinking was an increased attention to gender and sexual equality. And while the attention wasn't exactly split 50-50 between male and female artists, great strides were made. Looking back, it's very, very obvious that the 90s could not have rocked at the level they did without the many, many women who found their voice and an audience during that decade. Like any artist, these women were determined dreamers, driven by that one thing that they needed more than anything else in the world, the one thing that they were truly passionate about, an unstoppable need to make and perform music. Whatever it took, they were going to do it. But it wasn't easy. However, once things got established, it did get easier. And we are still talking about these women, and we're still feeling their influence today. This is the story of the women who rocked the 90s. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Close to 40 million records sold. That's Alanis Morissette and the first single from Jagged Little Pill, which appeared in the summer of 1995. I remember the first time I heard that song. I was listening to the radio, driving up the 101 in Los Angeles. And when it came on, I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is angry and fierce and authentic. And when the announcer came on and said it was from this Canadian woman, I said, that, that can't possibly be the same Alanis who tried to be a pop star a few years ago. Could it? Well, of course it was. She had completely remade herself. Instead of another fluffy pop song, Alanis had pivoted into being herself and expressing her personal views honestly and directly. She packed up, moved to Los Angeles, found some new people to work with, and completely reinvented herself. The person that emerged was confident, forthright, and angry. And it turns out that with this song, she was articulating the way a lot of people, women and men, felt about certain types of relationships. And she almost named names, too. The object of her ire might be, probably was, comedian Dave Coulier. Or maybe it's Mike Peluso of the New Jersey Devils. Or it uh, could have been Matt LeBlanc from Friends. Or Leslie Howe, the Canadian producer, who was behind her first two albums. She, she never said, but the speculation is out there. You Ought to Know started out on alternative radio and then spread and spread and spread until it became this generational anthem. And with that, Alanis Morissette joined a new generation of women who spoke their mind and kicked butt. 
Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and welcome to Driven by Her, a special new podcast series from the ongoing history of new music, presented by our new friends at Porsche Canada. Porsche was founded on the pursuit of a dream, much like the careers of some of these women who would be featured as part of these podcasts. These are trailblazers and hit makers. They are dynamic, driven women who would not take no for an answer, changing the face of music in the process. And the 1990s was a very important time for that. Okay, hold on, back up. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We need to cover a little background before we go any deeper. These women just didn't materialize out of nowhere. Something had to have happened to make their rise to power possible. And the roots of that go back to the 1970s and the original punk rock explosion. Now, punk was all about ripping it up and starting again. If you had something to say, you should be able to say it, regardless of who you were, what you looked like, what your background was, or your gender. It's kind of hard to believe now, but this was a novel thing back in the 1970s. Many women took advantage of these punk rock values. Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees, members of the Slits, Polly Styrene of X-Ray Specs, Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders, Patti Smith, and so many more. They were all pioneers, and they all inspired many people, women, but also men, to do what they did. If you were around in the late 70s and through the 1980s, you just could not help but notice an increasing number of women who rocked. Remember, before then, it was common knowledge, common sense that women could not rock. It just wasn't done. But then, in about 1990, there was that Gen X tipping point. Like I said, these were sons and daughters of the baby boomers. Their moms and dads fought for things like civil rights, birth control, and women's rights. Gen Xers grew up with these concepts and weren't about to give up any of these victories won by their parents. And that included inroads made into music. By the time the 1990s were over, rock had been completely remade. So let's take a look at some of the contributions made by women over those 10 years. As the 90s began, word began to spread about a singer-songwriter from Buffalo named Ani DeFranco. She was very active politically and socially, she appeared at benefits and rallies. She threw her support behind things like voting rights and abortion rights. Plus, she was way out in front of the rest of society when it came to fighting for LGBT causes. Again, remember, this is 1990. Then there's the business side of her career. She could have done the expected thing and signed a major label record deal. But instead, at the age of 19, she formed her own indie label taking her cue from some punk and alternative artists dating back to the 1970s who wanted to maintain creative and financial control over what they did. So while she wasn't the first artist to take this route, Ani refined things further, and her Righteous Babe records became a template for hundreds of artist-owned and operated labels in the future. And I'm walking out in the rain And I am listening to the low moan And the dial tone again And I am getting I remember the first time I met Sinead O'Connor. It was sometime in early 1988. She was tiny, but she gave off an aura of power and strength. It was really amazing. The shaved head, the style of dress. She was all in combat uniform. And just the look in her eye, you immediately understood that she was not someone you would mess with. And that was something that was reinforced again and again, year after year. Sinead didn't only face down controversy, she created her own by insisting on speaking her mind all the time. When she refused to let the American National Anthem be played before one of her shows, 
she was attacked in the media, including by Frank Sinatra. When her second album was nominated for a bunch of Grammy Awards, she withdrew herself from consideration as a way of protesting how the recorded music industry treats artists, especially women. She was banned by Saturday Night Live after tearing up a picture of Pope John Paul II as a way of protesting the sexual abuse of children by the Catholic clergy. The backlash was intense, but she didn't care. Others saw this as a powerful example of protest and free speech. Ten years later, she had this to say. Everyone wants a pop star, see? But I am a protest singer. I just had stuff to get off my chest. I had no desire for fame. And that was hardly the last controversy. In the years since, Sinead continues to say the quiet things out loud about the Catholic Church and various aspects about organized religion. She talks about the AIDS crisis, war, child abuse, women's rights, and how women are treated by the music industry. And Sinead's personal life has been um, complicated. She became an ordained priest in a Catholic offshoot. In 2018, she converted to Islam. Uh, There have been crises of mental health and difficult personal issues. But Sinead has always been Sinead, and she will not have it any other way. One of the most fascinating women to emerge out of Britain in the early 1990s was P.J. Harvey. While the rest of the country was about the Manchester sound and then Britpop, P.J. was just kind of out there standing alone. By 1991, she was fronting her own outfit while still debating if she should study sculpture. The songs started coming fast. They were fierce and pointed and self-assured and raw and sometimes angry. Each album was different, too, not just in tone and sound, but also in terms of image. It was almost Madonna-like. Each presented a different look at P.J. Harvey, both sonically and visually. And once the accolades and awards started coming, they just didn't stop. Eight Brit Award nominations, seven Grammy nominations. She was nominated for four Mercury Prizes in the UK, winning twice, making her the only artist to do that. And in 2013, she was made a member of the British Empire for her contributions to music. And there's a lot more. She did become a sculptor and has had exhibits of her work. She's published books of poetry. She's appeared in movies. She's composed music for TV, film, and theater, including a production of Hamlet. If you haven't discovered P.J. Harvey yet, start at the very beginning and work your way through her albums. You will see a wonderful and fascinating evolution. This is a track from her 1992 album, Dry. It's called Sheila Nagig. While the early 1990s were dominated by grunge, Gen X was also open to other styles of music. And that included the rise of a couple of, um, well, let's just call them balladeers in the early 90s. They started on the alternative side of the spectrum, but then crossed over to the music world at large. Sarah McLaughlin was an adopted child. She moved from Halifax, where she was in a band called October Game, to Vancouver after being offered a record deal while still in high school. Her parents uh, weren't keen on that, so they convinced her to stay home, finish school, and attend one year of college. But then she moved west, where she reinvented herself as a solo singer-songwriter with Network Records, one of the country's most fierce indie record labels. She eventually connected with Pierre Marchand, who has been her collaborator ever since. Her first album was called Touch and appeared in 1988. 
But it was with the second album that she really broke through. Solace was an immediate hit across Canada when it was released in 1991. And since then, she has sold more than 40 million albums around the planet. There have been 26 Juno nominations with 12 wins. She's won three Grammys. In 1996, she got very frustrated with the male-dominated nature of the concert business, so she established her own female-centric touring music festival called Lilith Fair, which did very well over several seasons. She's a member of the Order of Canada. She has an honorary degree from Simon Fraser University. She has an honorary doctorate in law from the University of Alberta. In 2015, she was inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame. There's also her Governor General's Performing Arts Award, and she's in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Oh, and all her charitable work. I mean, who hasn't seen the commercials with the sad dogs? She's contributed to AIDS organizations, disaster relief projects, anti-racism initiatives. And then there's the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music, which offers music education for disadvantaged and at-risk children. How's that for a resume? The second balladeer we need to mention is Tori Amos. She was the rebellious kid of a minister who just happened to be a musical prodigy. When she was just five, she earned a scholarship into the Peabody Institute at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. But the classical life wasn't for her, and she was kicked out at the age of 11 for being a little too rock and roll for the curriculum. Debussy was fine, but her biggest influence was Led Zeppelin. After a short stint fronting a rock band called Why Can't Tori Read, she went back to the piano and started writing songs that focused on everything from religion to politics and feminism to sexuality and sexual abuse. In fact, she's been part of the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which offers help to victims. This is an especially important cause to Tori because she was raped at knife point when she was 22. She continues to support that organization and others like it. She's also been very close to LGBT groups. Her first gigs, arranged by her minister father, believe it or not, were in gay lounges and clubs. She was embraced by the gay community, and the loyalty has gone both ways ever since. She also has very close ties to the world of comic books. Neil Gaiman is a close friend, and he was involved in a 2007 graphic novel featuring 51 different stories, all inspired by Tori's songs. There's so much to Tori's story that she's written two memoirs. And really, you'd have to wonder if there'd be a Taylor Swift or a Lady Gaga had there not been a Tori Amos. Being driven sometimes involves identifying a problem and then finding a solution to that problem. And that's one way we can describe the riot girl phenomenon of the early 1990s. While the original punk rock scene at least made an attempt at equal opportunity and to be blind to gender, parts of punk evolved into something very male-centric. Hardcore, the American-bred ultra-intense offshoot of punk that took root in the 1980s was powered by pure testosterone. Gigs could get very rough and very violent. And there were other elements that didn't make it very welcoming to women. Meanwhile, there was grunge. Parts of that world were down with feminist causes and ideals. For example, Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder were pretty woke, sympathetic, and supportive. But the scene was still very much a boys' club. 
This did not sit well with a certain group of women in the Pacific Northwest. They set about carving out their own space. The music would be made about them and for them. It would deal with their issues and things that they cared about. And it would rock just as hard as what the boys were doing. Riot Girl bands and fans were a reaction to grunge and hardcore, yet two more male-dominated forms of rock. And the attitude was, we're going to fight back against this bro culture and the misogyny that's pervasive in society. These women did everything themselves, from playing the music to promoting the gigs to publishing zines to working with indie record labels. Taking inspiration from the female pioneers of punk and post-punk, that would be Patti Smith and Susie Sue and Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Chrissy Hind, Ani DeFranco, and so on, the Riot Girl movement burned very bright in the early 1990s, and its influence and its messages of empowerment and strength can still be felt today. Okay, so what was Riot Girl music? That's, that's actually a tough question to answer. At its root, it was garagey rock music created and performed by women that dealt with things women cared about. Put it this way, you knew it when you heard it. We could spend hours talking about proto-Riot Girl groups like Vancouver's Mecha Normal or Toronto's Fifth Column. And then there were bands like Sugar Baby Doll and The Pagan Babies and Bratmobile and Heavens to Betsy and Huggy Bear. The biggest of the bunch were probably Team Dresch and Sleater Kinney, both from the Pacific Northwest. Sleater Kinney's lineup included Carrie Brownstein. She later went on to write for and appear on Saturday Night Live. Maybe you've seen the Emmy Award-winning series she did with Fred Armisen called Portlandia. She's also been in episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm, Archer, The Simpsons, and Transparent. And then there was Bikini Kill, led by Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vale. They ticked all the boxes. They were heavily into feminist politics. They favored women at their shows, urging them down front and dudes to the back. Demanding that gigs be safe places for women? Check. Publishing zines? Yep, that too. And was the music loud and angry? You bet. Here's a sample from their 1991 release, Revolution Girl Style Now. Bikini Kill originally ran from 1990 to 1997 before breaking up. Kathleen Hanna continued her work as an artist and feminist activist with music, art, photography, video, and more. She's also married to Adam Horowitz of the Beastie Boys. Toby Vale has a very interesting spot in pop culture. She once dated Kurt Cobain. When she went over to his apartment one night in 1991, she remarked that he smelled all fruity and perfumed, kind of like a brand of deodorant she knew. She then spray-painted, Kurt smells like teen spirit on his wall. Now, Kurt, who did not wear deodorant, thought she was commenting on his youthful vitality and thought, hmm, that would make a good title for a song. He didn't know that there was a deodorant called Teen Spirit that smelled, uh, you know, fruity and perfumed. But we all know how that story turned out. Like I said, the Riot Girl scene sprung up largely in response to hardcore and grunge. But there were plenty of women who were fully prepared to mix it up with the guys. L7 predates most grunge bands. This is an all-female four-piece that was formed in Los Angeles back in 1985 and began releasing albums in 1988 as this punky, garagey, sludgy band. By the time they got to their third album in 1992, grunge was happening. And because that record was produced by Butch Vig, the same guy behind Nirvana's Nevermind, they ended up being lumped into the grunge crowd. 
At the same time, though, they were embraced by the Riot Girls for their fierce, uncompromising attitude towards guitar rock. They were also very Riot Girl in the sense that they were deeply involved in feminist causes. For example, in 1991, they formed Rock for Choice, a pro-choice women's rights group and concert series designed to raise money for people caught in anti-abortion violence. A bunch of clinics were bombed in the 80s and early 90s, and L7 felt that they needed to help out. Rock for Choice continues today. It's also important to mention that they refused to conform to the music industry's idea that women should be eye candy. Their attitude was, this is how we dress, this is how we look, deal with it. They proudly called themselves Slob Girls. Another artist with one foot in the Riot Girl world and another in grunge was Courtney Love. I don't know what more I can say about her other than she was the most visible, most outspoken, most independent woman, nay, humans, in, in rock in the 1990s. And beyond that, for that matter. Let's just put it this way. No one puts Courtney in a corner. She will do what she's going to do. And there has been plenty of controversy, uh, which I can tell you about based on my personal experience with her. She is also wicked, wicked, wicked smart. She's a true autodidact, well-versed in so many things. A conversation with her is, it's an education. There's no other way to put it. She has a view of where she belongs in the universe. She will not back down from a fight. And she has always, always had grand ambitions, whether it be music, fashion, social media, the works. If I can sum up everything, it would be this. Underestimate Courtney Love at your peril. Every once in a while, an artist comes along who is so different in their approach that you initially really don't know what to make of them. But as time goes by, it becomes clear that this person is reinventing many different things simultaneously. And this is how I would describe Bjork. Over her four decades as a singer, songwriter, producer, and actor, she has always stood out from the crowd. In fact, she's become an adjective. If I say that something is Bjorkish, you'll immediately understand that I'm talking about something so left of center that it describes most descriptions. Yes, I could mention the ever-shifting experimental musical styles. I could mention the 40 million records sold, the Grammy nominations, the Brit Awards, and the avant-garde film. But listen to this. Bjork is one of the few artists to be the subject of a retrospective art exhibit, which is exactly what happened at the New York Museum of Modern Art in 2015. Let's go back to the music for a second. Bjork has always maintained that she loves to discover sounds that have never been heard before. That something manifests itself in her music. But to me, it's, it's obvious with how she uses her voice. It is so, I don't know, elastic. No one sings like Bjork, and she's been very kind to other female artists who have different ways of expressing themselves, mentoring them through the record industry and signing some of them to her own record label. We should also speak of the environmental work that she does at home in Iceland. One project resulted in funds that helped establish a new national park. She helped raise money for the victims of the 2004 tsunami in Asia with a concert that she did with UNICEF. And while she's not overly political, she tends to shy away from that, she has also been supportive of various independent movements, including Tibet, Kosovo, and Greenland. 
And remember when Iceland went through a banking crisis back in the aughts? Out of that came a venture capital fund called Bjork that supported the establishment of sustainable industries in Iceland. Listen, if Bjork didn't exist, someone would have to invent her. But where would you even start? Oh, and notice that I didn't even mention her famous swan dress. By the time we got to the mid-1990s, the alternative world had given us plenty of strong, inspiring female artists. Liz Fair, strong feminist, came out of Chicago with an attitude that celebrated female sexuality in an uncompromisingly explicit way. She tells her story in a couple of memoirs. Then there's Fiona Apple, who lies somewhere between Tori Amos and Bjork when it comes to her music. But beyond that, she has donated substantial sums of money to an organization that assists refugees with everything from basic necessities to legal services. She's also a volunteer for an organization called Courtwatch PG, which keeps tabs on bail hearings and holds people in the judicial system accountable. The 90s have also gone down in history as a time of great female-fronted band, so let's go through some of them. Dolores O'Riordan was the face and voice of the Cranberries, a band that sold 50 million albums. Her powerful vocal style was unique and has been called one of the most distinctive voices in the history of alt-rock. Talk to Adele or Florence Welch or Halsley, and they'll tell you that Dolores was a huge influence on them. She's an icon in Ireland, and before she died in 2018, she worked as an activist on behalf of children all over the world. Over in England, Elastica, led by former architecture student Justine Frischmann. They were one of the leading bands of the whole Britpop era. She's now spending a lot of time painting and is married to a meteorologist and living in Colorado. There's Gwen Stefani. She sold over 35 million records with no doubt and millions more as a solo artist. She's raised millions of dollars for child victims of the 2011 tsunami in Japan. She supports various LGBT organizations and causes. She's been deeply involved in the fashion industry, including makeup and eyewear. There's Veruca Salt, bookended by Nina Gordon and Louise Post. They were one of the great American power pop bands of the middle 1990s. The Breeders, fronted by Kim and Kelly Deal, who were a big indie alternative act early in the decade. And then there's Shirley Manson, the Scottish singer who was drafted into Garbage, the American band. Her approach to singing and music has been cited as an influence by Amy Lee of Evanescence, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, Billie Eilish, and Lana Del Rey. She's also something of a fashion icon and has worked with designers and stylists. There are so many more women from the 90s that should be on this list. Jewel, who went from sleeping in her car to selling over 30 million albums. Meredith Brooks, who followed in the ballsy, angry footsteps of Alanis Morissette. Tracy Bonham, Nina Pearson of Sweden's The Cardigans, Canada's Alana Miles, Cheryl Crow, Amy Mann, Juliana Hatfield, Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, Joan Osborne. It's a really long list. And every one of these women have stories beyond just the music they made. Every decade has its share of incredible singers, but the 90s somehow seemed special when it came to strong female performers. They helped shift the entire paradigm of rock music into a completely new realm, creating new avenues and opportunities for the artists of today. I hope you enjoyed this look at the women who rocked the 90s. This is part of Driven by Her, a special new podcast series from the ongoing history of new music presented by our friends at Porsche Canada. 
Join me next time for another look at more trailblazers and hitmakers, dynamic women who live by their own rules and change the face of modern music around the world along the way. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk soon. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 